The Story Competition While the days belonged to the mighty journal, nighttime begged for different content. I discovered an article in a writer's magazine about a story competition sponsoring a payout of some prize money, though not much, and publishing the winning story in their magazine. This fitted perfectly with the writing goals I had in the fall. Some friendly competition to get the creative juices flowing and thrust my writing one stride forward. What wins a story competition? I had absolutely no idea. The only guidance provided was a minimum and maximum word count. After rumbling through some brainstorming exercises, one idea in particular hoped to answer that question. It did not answer that question one bit. Rather, the theme relentlessly poked fun at the question in vintage bully fashion. What if a story could be written about a pathetic wannabe author struggling to figure out how to write an engaging story for a competition? A very relatable subject. A berserk premise for sure, but the ideas rolling around in my head were gushing with giddiness. Perhaps some originality points might sway the judges. The theme of the story was about a writer seeking to find a story, all the while incrementally picking up inspirations to make its own existing story better by use of tone, proper spelling, foreshadowing, grammar, description, and conflict. This meant the beginning had to be void of those critical pieces, causing initial pain to the eyes and mind. But with some bits coming together later on, the reader might understand and forgive. What else wins a story competition? Finishing and submitting the manuscript on time. Unfortunately, the deadline could not have come at a worse time, as the fall of 1999 was front-loaded with winter prep. I might not have finished the story anyway, because while the idea was fun in my head, and even more fun as it got going, there was a falling out. The creativity wore its welcome, and the flow of it all withered. Unfinished stories do not earn creative titles. How to Lose a Story Competition by Never Finishing and Submitting It by Bradley Oliger Synopsis Juice, an unaccomplished but aspiring writer, has decided to compete in a national story competition. Lacking both the core grammar fundamentals and creativity needed to pull off an upset victory, he turns to his surroundings for inspiration. One diner, in particular, bubbles up a slew of literary surprises, and Juice is finally in the right position to make a bold move, a championship run. But will it be enough to win the competition, let alone finish the short story without making a complete mockery of himself? This story competition really stinks. I mean, I don't even have the slightest clue about what wins a story competition, what I've already written about is true garbage. Just a parody memoir about how I ended up in my ranky apartment in my neighborhood. And now, I'm making the story worse by writing about how I don't like what I've written. I shuffled through an old notebook, looking for ideas I've written down in the past. What the hell? A fishing story that has nothing to do with fishing? Ballads of a violent ex-newspaper editor? What the heck was I thinking? Those aren't ideas. Those are the products of having trouble sleeping at night. I glanced at my notes about the pets and urban wildlife in the area. 
Hmm, that might be worth delving into. The most important part is the beginning, and I'm terrible with beginnings. I mean, what the heck is a beginning anyway? I just can't do that crap, and even if I try, then it'll come out terrible, and if I were to let somebody read it, then they will hate that it's so untogethered. So why write? I left my ranky apartment. How the heck can I write something in there anyway when it's ranky? I acknowledged my attitude and wondered if it could be better. My brother always used to tell me, if you put your heart into something, eventually things will turn out better. That no matter how bad something seems, with a little hope and a good attitude, things will take a turn for the better. I guess that much is true, but the funny thing about the advice is that now my brother, the prophet, is up in some jail in Canada for who knows what and for who knows how long. And he was always the one passing around stupid advice about how good life is and having a good attitude about things. Yet, there's one undeniable fact that I have lived up to, though, and that is that if things cannot get any worse, then they can only get better. So, with that in mind, I might as well take a stab at some kind of story. It cannot really be worse than what it already is. I'll follow my brother's advice and put my heart into writing something. If I'm lucky, I'll like it and feel good about myself so much that I'll end up in a Canadian jail where my brother is. I arrived at my favorite eatery to find some inspiration. The place was operated by Toothless Spud, and he will always speak his mind through his thick beard. His problem is that he is about as good a friend to people as a rattlesnake. What I mean is that he's much worse than the friend who tries to tell you advice about how good life is and then ends up in a jail in Canada. He's so bad of a friend that he would not tell you if there was a crazy-eyed madman behind you holding a knife up near the back of your neck, wearing one of those old cheap mesh ball caps that read, I hate people in front of me. Of course, he did not rush over after seeing me walk in. He acted as if he was doing something important in the bathroom. Hey, Juice, what's up? He always calls me Juice because he thinks it is funny that I ask for orange juice instead of a beer each time I come in. I was the only one there. I'll be right with you. I'm trying to fix the toilet. Some kids pooped in it hours ago and couldn't flush it, so they ran out without ordering anything. What a bunch of dumbasses. But in the meantime, try one of these fortune cookies. The old Chinese food place next door that closed a few months back still gets these deliveries of fortune cookies because they had some contract or some crap like that. The owner's willing to give them to me at a cheap price, so I might pass them out for everybody with their meals. Tell me what you think. He tossed one over. Fortune cookies? I really dislike fortune cookies because, well, perhaps it is my negative attitude. I have that feeling that whoever writes these fortunes is not some great wise man like Gandhi or Weird Al Yankovic. Instead, some guy next to an empty bottle of Jack Daniels with a burned-down cigarette sticking out of his mouth. Or even worse, it's my brother writing those stupid quotes from his little smelly jail cell in Canada to make a little cigarette money or to ease his mind after an arduous day of breaking rocks with a pickaxe, designing a hockey rink, or whatever they make people do in Canadian prison nowadays. I have a poor attitude, I know. Yet... 
I was still desperate, hoping a fortune cookie would magically develop a plot. I cracked that little shell and out came the oyster of my pitiful future. In your journeys, give others hints that will foretell of what will soon happen next. I do not think my brother would have written that one because he usually makes a bit of sense. What a bunch of crap. Vague nonsense all that stuff is. But the cookies are still good eating. I peered back over to Toothless Spud, still busily doing nothing. Hey, let me have another one of those. He gave an underarm throw that sent the cookie short of the table. The treat cracked in two on the floor within the package. I popped the tasteless treat in my mouth and was left again with a little white slip. An angry friend will end this disaster. Friends? I don't have any friends. Sure you do, said Toothless Spud, finally bringing over my juice and a plate comprising a burger that seemed to have been sitting around for a few hours sided by some fries, equally elderly. I really, really hate his hamburgers. I honestly think what he does is, if somebody does not eat a hamburger he makes for them, which isn't uncommon, he'll serve it to the next person who haplessly asks for a burger. Once that burger is left uneaten, the cycle continues on and on. You got some friends. I know, Toothless Spud, I groaned. I'm in a foul mood, I guess. He picked up on my groanedness, but there was something that bothered him. I told you to quit calling me Toothless Spud, he blurted. That's not my name, you know that. Look, I've got all my teeth. He opened his mouth wide, showing two rows of brown things. I thought that's your name. It says Spud's Toothless Diner outside. Spud's Toothless Diner, not Toothless Spud's Diner. There's a difference. I scratched my non-idea thinking head. Then what's a toothless diner? I don't know. I just like the sound of it. Spud's Toothless Diner. But have you ever found a tooth in my food? I shook my head in discord. Boom. My name's not even Spud either. It's Archie. But if I called it Archie's Toothless Diner, I don't know. It wouldn't sound right. Spud goes better with toothless. The funny thing is that I come to this guy often for advice. So what's eating at you anyway? I don't know. I had to get out of my ranky apartment, I suppose. Ah, what the heck. Why not? No, actually, I was trying to think up some, you know, some story with a plot and good writing, and I just can't think up nothing. It's for a story competition. What the heck are you trying to write a story for anyway? He asked so compassionately. What are you, stupid? This might not sound so great, but, Juice, you can't write nothing if you don't know nothing, you know? You gotta learn things before you write about them, and you gotta learn how to write before you can write. Take me. He held up a thumb to his chest. All I really know of anything is that you're stupid. That's about it, but I wouldn't write a story about you being stupid. I wouldn't know how to anyway. I'd get some books from the library and learn something so you can write about getting smarter. Just then don't forget to return them. 
Those librarians are worse than the IRS about getting their books back, you know? They'll fine you and chase you. Scary them librarians are. All I was hoping to hear. Good. I'm not writing nothing. I can return to a life of no obligations. He twiddled his greasy finger around in my orange juice and sat down in the booth across the table from me with a greasy, pensive gaze out the window. Maybe he finally thought of a reason he named his diner Toothless. You know something, Juice? Maybe all that I'll ever know in life is that you're stupid. But I was told that if I were to write a story... He thought for a moment and regrouped. I was told by a friend of mine that if I were to ever make a stab at fiction, that I shouldn't worry about it being too realistic. I grinned, looking down at the burger I had not touched yet. You sure he wasn't telling you not to worry about being too realistic when you cook these skanky hamburgers? Like using realistic meat? I mean, this burger. Well, I want to say that you never seem to notice that you always bring me a burger each time I come. And each time, I never eat it. This thing is nasty. It's probably the same one you gave me the last 20 times. I really hate these burgers. Every time I see your hamburgers... I get in a bad, bad mood, almost to where, if this hamburger were actually to turn into a man, I would want to lure him into a dark back alley and kick the crap out of him. And I really am a peaceful man. I've eaten grasshoppers that taste better than this. He didn't seem to notice that I was speaking and continued on. No, you can't worry about being too realistic. You gotta take an idea and bring it to life. You understand what I'm saying, Juice? I mean... Even if it's a memoir, why be realistic? You got me, Juicy Juice. I really hate that name, Juice. I took a bite from the burger, hoping this consumption would put an end to future burger offerings. The taste was worse than the smell. What you got so far? He asked. I gazed out the window to gather myself. Not much. I've just been writing about living at my apartment in the neighborhood. Some of the projects I've been working on... Pretty awful so far. Is it fiction or a memoir? He asked. Not quite sure, I replied. Well, you're always out looking at the animals. Write about those some. Make it more informative or your trips in the neighborhood. Thankfully, a rare visitor squeezed to the entrance to take my mind off the terror and tossed a bitter smile our way. It was Gregor Morksley, a regular, although the only thing regular about him is that he likes to read newspapers. The regularity stops there, because the only reason he reads the newspaper is to find all the grammatical mistakes. He used to be a newspaper editor in Chrisholm and really, really hated grammatical mistakes whenever their beat reporters and writers occasionally submitted their work to him. I cautiously call him regular to this diner only because he regularly comes each night to take the newspaper from Archie. He never eats never drinks, just fiercely takes the newspaper with hardly a word spoken and returns to his little private workshop of rectification, doing who knows what to the newspaper with a red pen and whiteout. He's not really that regular by any standard. Hey, Archie. Hey, Juice, he said, sort of showing his teeth like an angered dog, while his eyes fixed around the empty tables looking for the newspaper, he calls me Juice, too, and I rarely get bothered by it much, 
but I did today because this hamburger sitting before me has already worked its magic in making me angry. I did not want to say anything, though. I just was not mad enough to be violently ripped apart by a maniac ex-newspaper editor. Hey, Gregor, said Archie. Juice over here is thinking of writing some kind of story for a competition. What do you think, huh? Got any advice? I told him he ought not to worry too much about trying to be realistic, you know? What do you think? He peeked at me with a sinful stare behind his round spectacles. I mean, really evil. I noticed the words on his hat. It read, I hate the person in front of me. The hair stood up on my neck. Writing a story, are you? I'll tell you some advice. He grumbled, accentuating the word advice. If you write a story and you let me read it, then there will not be any grammatical errors. Hyphens combine words that would not normally go together. Commas provide flow to the sentence, not combine two unrelated statements. You will know the appropriate uses of there, 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 its, its, your, and your. You will not have any spelling mistakes. There's absolutely no excuse for spelling mistakes in modern times. He paused to catch his breath and search his mind for more poisons and perversions of the English language. He leaned in on the text of the newspaper, squinted some, and slammed it down on the table. I used that tangent to reflect on a few recent things I had done since leaving the apartment. I rolled me eyes, knowing for certainly that him is not perfect at grammar, too, but I continue to let he continues. Your facts, if any at all, better be straight, he resumed. You will need to decide if it's non-fiction or fiction and stick to that genre. Don't let me catch you going back and forth between truth and fantasy. The story will not have any made-up words. Readers are not stupid. You will understand the appropriate use of an apostrophe. There is no such thing as most worse. Worse is a comparative adjective and therefore can only compare two nouns. And last, the use of the word and is appropriate so long as the word initiates an independent clause. Do we have an understanding? I will terminate your story with a vengeance if you fail at any of these things. I was the newspaper editor back in Stanleyville. Have I ever told you what I've done to the remains of sophomoric reporters who've handed me nonsensical, inaccurate garbage? <laughs> I chuckled at the silliness of what he said, despite how angrily he said it. There were rumors he had been suspended for implanting false grammar mistakes into submitted works just to get certain writers fired. Newspaper and magazine agencies have a zero-tolerance policy for corrupt editors nowadays. I quickly stopped laughing once I noticed that he was less than within a moment of killing me for laughing at him. I followed my eyes from his angry, wrinkled face up to his hat. I hate people in front of me. He was facing right in front of me. Or better put, I was facing in front of him. Hey, Gregor, what's that on your shoulder, huh? Why don't you turn yourself a little to the left so I can see your shoulder better? It was all I could think of to get him to stop facing me. I cautioned he might snap right here and now, 
as if all it would take was one glance down under that newspaper, seeing the front page cover story's title has the word necessity in it, but it's accidentally spelled necessity with an S instead of a C. This guy was pure acerbity. He checked his shoulder for a moment, and then the other. What are you getting at, Juice? He looked down at the newspaper. Oh my god, don't look at the newspaper. Gregor, Gregor, w wait. I glared out the window. Oh man, look at that billboard, you see that? Can't they spell or what? The hope was that someone might be out there, a means to keep from being in front of Gregor with that hat on. As the fortune cookie predicted, I needed to be exceedingly cautious. I pressed both hands up on the glass to give way for a wider field of vision. The streets were empty. Time to improvise. Wait, there's the billboard maker guy now. He's running away. He thinks he can misspell a McDonald's ad and get away with it. Go get him and save whatever grammatical goodness is left in our non-punctuating society. No response. Archie walked up next to me, peering enthusiastically for the man I was erroneously pointing out. You, uh, doing okay? Archie asked. Yeah, I replied. I was just telling Gregor about a man outside misspelling words on the billboard. Archie grimaced. I pursed my lips together and whispered, I'm trying to get Gregor out of here before he kills me. I twitched my head in Gregor's direction twice as a reference. Gregor? asked Archie. I haven't seen him. What do you mean you... I said with a pause mid-sentence. Looking back at an empty table where Gregor was moments ago, the newspaper was gone. Where'd he go? Can't go anywhere if he ain't here. Say, why don't you finish that hamburger now? said Archie. I was struck by confusion. Where had Gregor fended off to? There was no trace of him. If he was never here, then why is my grammar improving? Why am I not making up words any longer? Archie broke my concentration. You know, that grammar stuff sure is right. You gotta have punctuation and grammar stuff. Make sure you got the grammar. You mean make sure you have the grammar. I corrected him robotically. I panned one more time for Gregor with no success. He threw his hands up. I'm not the one writing a stupid story for some competition. Don't tell me I gotta have grammar. He settled down only a slight bit, enough to talk again, at least. You know what, Juice? I really can't help you much, but I know somebody who can. He stood up from the table and helped himself to a swig of my OJ. Follow me. I trailed him past the counter and gave one more glance towards the tables, fully expecting Gregor to reappear. We moved through the back kitchen and into a walk-in freezer. Where are you taking me, Archie? He did not respond. Instead, he pushed aside a large metallic shelf. The bottom was wheeled on all four legs, and behind, there were the rectangular outlines of an inconspicuous door. Perhaps a secret burger storage room where he lets the patties age like wine before serving them to the public. Nasty burgers they were. Gee, I need to take inventory, he articulated as if giving commands to a senile dog, and with the sentence came a loud series of clicks behind the door, finishing with one long squeak. The door slid wide open, 
and his grin was wider. You like that? I say, gee, I need to take inventory and the door automatically opens. At that point, the door quickly closed, nearly pinching his fingers. Crap! Almost got me on that one. Gee, I need to take inventory, he said again as the doorway cleared once more. Ain't she a piece of work? I was too preoccupied over his motive for taking me into his secret burger room to answer, even more preoccupied with the fact that before us were stairs, lots and lots of steep stairs descending into darkness. He flipped a switch, and at the gesturing swing of his arm, I followed my ill-motived friend, Archie, step after step, until we came unto a bright, large room, almost the size of a warehouse. I took another bite from my burger out of astonishment. Pretty smooth establishment I got here, isn't it? Asked Archie. It's where my friend lives. You really ought to speak with him. He's the one who told me about the reality stuff. He's a writer himself, and he lets me read his stories. It was not exactly the coziest establishment, but the place was stimulating. Juice, I'd like you to meet Spud, said Archie, pointing behind me. A withered man had somehow eluded my senses and was standing right behind, only inches away. A little startled, I finally nodded. Hello, sir. I took a step back. He seemed overly thrilled to see someone, smiling at me with missing teeth. I paused from the observation for a moment to do some calculating, as if a chalkboard with simple math equations had burst out. I looked back around. The area truly seemed to be of a forlorn man. Spud glanced at Archie. Let me guess. This guy wants some instruction. I knew you would find somebody. He studied me for quite a long time, walking a wide semicircle around my body with a furrowed brow and a hand to his chin. He really seemed animated and almost seemed to charge me into feeling better about myself. He finally stiffened up as if he had gathered all he could and parted his lips to speak. You're trying to write something, yes? I nodded. But I can't think up nothing. Anything. You can't think up anything. I snapped my finger, realizing the mistake had slipped out already. Grandma, my friend, very important, very... Very important, I'll say, but I won't say it again. Gregor already told him that, declared Archie. How's your grammar and spelling looking overall, he inquired. I reflected on my time at the apartment and moments at the diner before Gregor appeared. It was slightly rough at the beginning, some misspellings and missing commas. I'm cleaning that up mostly. Archie looked back over to me as if pulling thoughts from my skull. Fortune Cookie told him that about foreshadowing. Spud shook his head. Damn, I missed that, right. Readers love to say I knew it. Well, I'll tell you another imperative detail, a detail so dear to my writing. It's shedding aside reality and writing without limits. It is fiction, and in fiction is fantasy and unreality, finished Spud, enchanted by his aura. He had been waiting for months to tell someone this in person. I already told him that, too. I said what you said to me about that kind of stuff, though he's not quite sure if what he wrote is a real memoir or fictional. Kind of both, it sounds, added Archie. You remember a few months ago about our little talk? His face grew sour and discontent and murmured some words under his breath. 
He gawked at the floor for an awkward amount of time without a sound. He composed a few more semicircle paces around me with eyes like an owl. In fact, his entire head was like an owl, almost. His neck was somehow twisted around 270 degrees. His head faced me while his body was almost completely in the other direction. I felt a sharp pain in my own neck just by watching it. He twisted back around to match his face like a slinky toy and dropped his jaw. His face stretched out with his lips still pursed together. Look, I said, I was actually probably not going to write anything. I'm probably going to go home to my apartment and, I don't know, eat some dinner or something. I really ought to... Aha, he blurted. I know how to help you. I really don't need any help. I'm going to leave, all right? I made for the stairs, but he sidestepped in front of me. One moment, my friend. Where are you going? He ordered. Probably to my apartment, I guess. It's really none of your business, so why don't you get out of my way? I sort of gave him a slight nudge to the side. I do not know why, because he was so nice, but I did it nonetheless. Perhaps it was because I could still smell the hamburger that Archie had served me, even from down here. That's it. I know what your problem is. Don't simply say your apartment. Use some detail, you elephant-eared, half-shaven, short-tempered fool. You need detail if you wish to write something. You are not upset by Archie's hamburger because it's a hamburger now. You're distressed because turkey vultures get a whiff of Archie's insidious hamburgers and abruptly become a migratory species with vegan appetites. Now, where are you going now? I hesitated for a moment. Did I mention the thing about the hamburgers out loud? He smacked me in the head. The insidious, disease-ridden, partly decayed burger, sitting between buns made not of dough, but of John Doe. Now, where are you going? He called out. I'm going to my ranky, sardine can of an apartment. But, yes, he howled. Your ranky, sardine can of an apartment. Yes. Never mind that ranky is not a substantive word. Editors will hate made-up words, but the fact is, editors probably think Archie's insidious, disease-ridden, partially decayed burgers are delightful. Editors are not born from the womb, but rather of fire and torment. But when you make up a word, try using quotation marks. The reader will be more forgiving. He tugged me securely but gently over towards the stairs. Now, what about these steps? What do you see when you first came down? I saw stairs, lots and lots of steep stairs descending into obscurity. Come on, Spud, you're a nice guy, I know, but, I mean, you're thinking these stairs are not very significant and you'll never have to describe them ever, so why bother about it, right? You're thinking about your brother's jail cell in Canada and how no reasonable human reader would ever want to know the sheets he sleeps on were woven during an era where watching television in black and white was the finest way to go when having an itch was in style. I know you're thinking that, but it's merely the concept of making descriptive observations. When I peer up these stairs, I follow up the wooden stairway as light looks to melt away, halfway up its steep incline like a ship amidst fogged waters. See? The description is what it's all about. It's half the fun. I mean, search around this room. How would you illustrate this room? Come on, tell me, you soft-shelled spineless clam. All right. I took a steady pan throughout the area, forming circle after circle 
after circle after circle, absorbing the minutiae. If it was details he required, it was details he'll get. Well, coming from upstairs in the walk-in freezer, this place certainly has turned out much odder than I would have ever imagined. I mean, its size hits me first. It's about the capacity of a warehouse I'd once worked at as a youthful high school senior. Bags of grain were stockpiled on pallets all over. The musty smell stood out most. Ugh, such a fetid smell. To tell you the truth, I don't know how I haven't sneezed yet because I'm a little allergic to musty, damp basements. Here we are, amidst a penitentiary of our own allergens, for no gregarious human was ever meant to live in such dank solitude. What else? Come on! He implored as he violently smacked my forehead with his leathery palm. Again, his zeal was drilling and biting deep into me like those visceral microbes on Archie's hamburgers. I inhaled another breath. Well, I don't know how you can live here. Why? Because for one thing, there's no bed. Just a dilapidated desk and some crooked cabinets sit in that dank, pint-sized corner, which must unquestionably be your writing quarters. But what I don't understand is how you can write because there's no light over there. How can you stand that? Not to mention all of this mustiness. And why must you be alone? No human would ever elect to live like this deliberately. I write horror fiction a lot. It helps me seize the darkness of horror, he defended bashfully. His eyes were twinkling with delight, which is more than I can mention about Archie's hamburgers. I truly did not like those antimatter burgers much. Spud seemed as if he wanted me to continue on, as if testing me. With a floor of hard cement, it was strange under all these circumstances. The smooth openness reminded me of the skating rink I used to skate at as a clumsy kid with my school. I could almost taste the nachos being sold at the concession booth and hear the 80s rock music over the loudspeaker. Sometimes I would speed skate and trip all the other challengers. Sometimes I'd skate backward. But never, never did I ever couple skate because all the girls thought I was too immature, even in grade school. I saddened, thinking about that moment. And suddenly... The room did not feel so wonderful any longer. The space had surrendered its invisible neon welcome sign. In fact, it almost felt unsafe. Well, that's wonderful. You said nothing else because you produced a proper description already. You don't want to get bogged in too much detail or else you'll steal away from the fluency of the story. You got me? Because I won't say it again. I gotcha, I replied. And watch out for those big words, too. I mean, it's helpful to have some of those big words hardly anyone understands, but don't live by them. Use strong words that seem to reach out and nip you instead. He muddled me a little with his advice. What do you mean? I mean, if you're expressing the extent of somebody's anger, then say rage instead of acerbity. Or if someone were to become lonely, say they feel stranded instead of forlorn. Nobody cares about those big words, really. Those were poor examples, and be glad I won't say them again. He attempted to smack me in the skull again, but this time I was ready, and trapped it inches away from my face. And muddled didn't fit all that well in this moment. I glanced over at Archie. Did you hear me say muddled? I asked. 
His face was as barren as his food quality. He shrugged at the question. Spud pointed to the only light in the entire basement. His head was nearly turned backward like an owl again. My neck began to hurt again. Describe that light, he demanded. I sucked a deep breath to begin with a perfect array of adjectives. But as soon as words formed, the light turned off abruptly. The blackness was so complete that I eluded my body in motion. The deep sensation rivaled experiences of spelunking where only thoughts are proof of a material world. I heard scuffling and grunting as if I were listening to a 300-pound man try to fit himself into a firefighter suit tailored to a petite gymnast. A sharp and disturbing hissing sound immediately followed. All external sounds ceased for nearly a minute as my heart thumped rapidly. No matter how hard I moved my lips to speak, Nothing would come out. I could not turn my body or head. My arms were frozen in place. I heard a methodical thumping behind me. The volume of each thump faded slightly. Gee, I need to take inventory. With those words, light slowly returned. This time, coming from the top of the staircase, with Archie standing at the entrance. Well, come on, you knucklehead he said, waving an open hand at me. He flipped the light switch, restoring the illumination that had so quickly dissipated moments before. Here you go. Wouldn't want you tripping up the stairs. I peered around at a completely stocked room full of canned corn, beans, and bags of grain. The section that showed Spud's writing space was no longer there. Instead, there was a mop bucket with murky water still sitting inside. Everything was different. Spud, more shockingly, was nowhere to be found. Archie hovered at the top of the stairs with a bemused grin. I could see that several teeth were missing suddenly. No, more than several were missing. All of them were missing. Come on, finish that burger so you can work on that story of yours now. I took another sadistic bite. I could see that Gregor Morksley stood next to him, shaking his head. We're not finishing anything, Spud. As an editor, I gave an oath to protect the integrity of the English language. This story is over. The Unfinished and Unsubmitted End The idea picked up at the end, but a deadline is a deadline, and so... It became another abandoned work that became modernized slightly to fit this memoir. A filler served for boring moments when the power was out and the rain hammered down in buckets. I hesitate to call an unfinished work terrible because once a story gets completed as a first draft, plugging in substance and knotting the themes together becomes much, much easier. As a judge story, it is very conceivable that an early dismissal would have been expected, with all the early deliberate misspellings and grammar misfortunes, the entire scheme walked a fine line between terrible and god-awful terrible.